Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you this week? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely splendid. It is coming into, well, it actually is spooky season now, which is objectively the best season. Would you agree? More of a Christmas man myself, you know, but uh, I, I did enjoy it a lot as a child because I got to build a bonfire and go trick-or-treating, which was great. But unfortunately, they don't uh, respond well to me lighting bonfires around my estate now, surprisingly. That's it's so cringe. But objectively, Halloween especially is the best, the best festival, shall we say, of the year. Fireworks. You know, the smell of smoke in the air, the cold, crisp, you know, mornings when you wake up and you have that little bit of fog, you know, it's just the best. You know, also you start getting cozy, you know, you like just put on a few extra layers, you know, especially after the summers. I feel like at least for me, the summer was quite warm. Like some of those days in London was like 40 degrees. So I'm ready for like a few extra layers. Like I'm still wearing shorts now. So we need to get rid of those shorts. We need to get some nice fucking cozy clothes. Yeah, well, in Ireland, it will just rain all the time, probably. So um, you'll need an umbrella, you'll need a rain jacket, you'll need changes of clothes, but hopefully it ain't too bad. Anyway, not one of those people that gets too down or up above the weather. So let's just uh, leave it aside and focus on the important things like how much exercise we should do. Well, look, Ireland is a rainforest. People often forget that because we don't have that many trees. In fact, we have the low, one of the lowest amount of trees in all of Europe, which is very cringe. But Ireland does actually have a rainforest climate, much like somewhere like uh, Seattle, you know. But anyway, I digress. Today we are talking about how much exercise, how much exercise is too much. And more specifically, how much exercise is too much for health. Because we've previously talked about this in the context of, you know, let's say, oh, the results you're trying to get. You'll often try, you'll often see people go, oh, I'm just going to do a load of extra resistance training volume. I'm going to do, you know, 30 sets per body part uh, of whatever exercises. And that doesn't necessarily lead to better results, right? So we've talked about that before. We've also talked about it from the perspective of doing too much exercise from the perspective of something like amenorrhea you know um or whatever you want to call it the female athlete triad or you know that kind of stuff red s whatever right and so we have talked about this before a few different times and we're not necessarily going to talk about it from those angles in this episode although they obviously inform the discussion but we are going to talk about it from the perspective of in this episode is your overall health because If you remember in the last few episodes, so if you haven't listened to them, do go back and listen to them. We've been talking about this kind of sweet spot range of exercise, you know, where you're like, okay, well, this is kind of the bare minimum, right? And I say the bare minimum, obviously there's still results to be garnered, results to be gained from doing less, you know, especially if you are a newbie, if you haven't been training, et cetera, right? But there does seem to be some threshold where, this is where we really start to get better results. We really start to get better health outcomes, et cetera. And then we've also talked about how there is a bit of an upper threshold with that in terms of 
results seem to level off or the return on investment seems to level off, right? And if you go on any discussion, or I should say, if you go anywhere that this is discussed, if you talk to anyone, they'll often talk about this kind of inverted U where, you know, you do a lot of exercise. Okay, you're getting better and better results. Okay, okay, it's starting to, to kind of level off as you kind of get, you know, more and more results and you do more and more and you get to this point this inflection point we'll say where doing more is suggested to actually lead to worsening outcomes so it's like okay better better results better 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 keep doing more 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 you get to this top and it's like okay you're in a kind of you've you've maxed it out and then it starts to go down you start doing more exercise and your health actually starts to decline you know and this is both in a more transient manner and also in a more chronic manner. And what I mean by that is, you know, someone will say, oh, well, I just started training, you know, 40 hours per week. And then all of a sudden their health declines transiently, like in the moment, because they just weren't able to handle that amount of volume. And then also you have it over a chronic period of time where someone has been consistently training for, let's just say 15 hours per week. And they've effectively started to slowly decline because they're not recovering from that. But that's not the full discussion, just talking about the recovery aspect, because that's often what people focus on, which is important and we will bring it up. But what we're really talking about here is the actual health outcomes from the training, right? So the recovery aspect, it is one part of it, but it's not the full story. So we'll have to touch on that, but we have to also touch on the main body of the stuff that we want to discuss, which is the actual outcomes from, from exercise or I should say the actual health outcomes from exercise. Like we're not really talking about the performance outcomes. Like if you're an Olympian and you have to train 20, 30, 40 hours for your sport, like obviously that's a little bit different. And we'll talk about that to an extent in in a second as well. But Gary, where, where do we start with this? Like what's like, what's the, What's the whole point of this discussion? So first and foremost, I suppose it's worth understanding that this, this, is, this is almost one of those things that's just become dogma where you know people will often just kind of throw it out there that, yeah, there's a point of diminishing returns at which more exercise might actually be harmful for your health. And that just seems to make a lot of logical sense because we see those relationships in physiology a lot of the time. Um, but you still have to question it. You still have to ask yourself, where is that line? And you see this coming up, come up in a number of areas um, where people will talk about the difference between sport and health. And it will say that what athletes do is not healthy, which is, is true in a lot of cases. Um, and then it comes up in another area, which is when someone is doing a lot of training, you'll receive comments like typically from parents or family that, oh, that can't be good for you. That's far too much. So that's not healthy anymore. Um And there is something to that. But the question really is that, is there something that takes place that when at a certain amount of exercise volume or a certain level of exercise performance at which your health would actually become compromised? Um, The theory that would be related to this would be referred to as the extreme exercise hypothesis. And if you're to think of a U-shaped graph here where you've got a U-shape and at the, clo- at the left side of the U, you've got someone who's doing no exercise. And that person's going to have the highest risk um, to their health as a result. So fundamentally, where the exercise guidelines are going to be placed 
is at the bottom of that first slope on the U. So at the bottom of the downward slope, where risk has been reduced to the greatest extent, it makes the most sense to put the exercise guidelines for health there because someone is reducing the risk to the great to the greatest extent, um, but it's still you know a practical amount of exercise volume without dipping into the so-called increase in slope that's going to increase the person's risk again. So the idea here is that as you get beyond the exercise guidelines, which would be 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity exercise, um, or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous exercise, um, along with the strength training guidelines, but mainly just focusing on the aerobic for the moment. Um, as you go beyond that, the idea would be that you run into the, the extreme exercise window. So at this point, you're actually end up, you actually end up compromising your health. And there are a number of reasons why people would hypothesize this to be the case, you know, uh, increases in um, pathological heart rhythms like atrial fibrillation, for example, where the heart basically ends up with these kind of electrical defects that end up with it beating chaotically, and that can then lead to cardiac events. It would also be um, due to coronary artery calcification. We see increases in calcification of the coronary arteries in athletes and people who do extreme volumes of exercise. But the question there is, okay, well, is that adaptive? Is it physiological or is it pathological? The same with the atrial fibrillation. When we see this take place, are we seeing it take place in people who would have had atrial fibrillation anyway, and it's just being unmasked by exercise? And is this at a higher rate than the general population? Then we've got things like myocardial fibrosis and aortic dilatation. Again, other changes within the heart and the cardiovascular system that is observed that are observed in some athletes that might be hypothesized to reduce one's uh, longevity. So fundamentally, all of that comes back to that extreme exercise hypothesis. But the key thing to understand there is that it is still a hypothesis. You know, while there is, you know, there are some snippets of evidence to support it. That's what we want to do in this podcast is ask, okay, is there actually um, this diminishing point of returns for your health? Or, and, and more importantly, is there a point where the returns on health actually reverse and you end up compromising your health and living a shorter life? And we can think about that in a couple of different ways. For example, we might ask the question, if we have highly trained endurance athletes who obviously train a lot more than the average person and have a much higher VO2 max or aerobic fitness than the average person, do they have higher rates of cardiovascular events? That might be one way of asking the question. Um, do they have other diseases that are shortening their life? Or very simply, do they live shorter lives or do they live longer lives? So that's fundamentally what we want to try to answer in this episode. Yeah, and I think it's really important to kind of just grasp that concept, which is it's a little bit easier if you have a diagram in, in front of you. But to kind of just reiterate, what Gary's saying is there, the hypothesis at least is that We'll have this U, so not an inverted U like I was talking about a second ago, a U, right? So if you look, if you just imagine a U, or if you're watching this on video, I'm drawing it out, <laughs> right? So you've got a U, and the side of, well, either side of that U, uh, U is starting to sound like it's not a word anymore. But anyway, so you've got either side of that. That's where the biggest slope down is. So you've got, you know, basically a straight line down before it curves towards the bottom before it curves back up right so the exercise guidelines that we currently have you know the ones that Gary has just uh, noted there they're set to kind of get the vast majority of that slope down of the u 
right? Because that's where you're getting the biggest return on investment. Then when we talked about previously in, I think it was maybe two episodes time ago, maybe it was the last episode, I'm not sure, when we talked about, oh, well, there actually seems to continue to be benefits from doing, you know, it was like 300 to 600 minutes per week of activity, right? That's where we're getting more of the bottom bit where the, the U starts to curve, right? So when we get to that like 600, that's kind of where they're suggesting at least the the point starts to kind of start to maybe curve back up, right? Or at least at 600, we're just getting the, a lot of straight line across. There's no additional benefit. So again, if you're thinking about that U, that bottom bit, like depending on how wide your U is, there's a point where you're kind of just getting similar, like, yeah, okay, it's it's curving a little bit, but you're not getting anything extra. And then there comes a point where, okay, if we start doing more, our health risk actually starts going back up, right? That's at least the, the suggestion. So if we're having general guidelines, how are you going to set the general guidelines? You're going to set them to get the vast majority of that slope down in reducing risk, right? If you have the time and you have the availability, like the the possibility to do it, obviously we're going to try to get all those little extra benefits till we get to that inflection point where it starts to slope back up, right? That would be the suggestion. That would be the hypothesis that, again, there is this point where, okay, you do more, okay, the risk starts to go back up, right? Um, but is that actually true? And obviously, Gary, you've, you've noted a few more cardiovascular-related issues with doing more exercise. You know, this is what they say happens in athletes. Like, I have atrial fibrillation, or at least I've had it um, noted in a, I always get them mixed up, an EKG, no, ECG. Yeah, they, they say, the Americans just call it an EKG, but it, same thing. Okay, well, either way, I've had that noted. I do a lot, a lot of exercise. It doesn't seem to have been pathological. Um, who knows? Maybe I'll you know, die of a heart attack or something in a couple of weeks, and then you'll know. Um, but either way, <clears throat> is it just the cardiac stuff that we have to be aware of, or are there more? Like, is there more to this discussion? There's definitely more to the discussion. It's just that when we talk about longevity, um the cardiovascular consideration they're probably number one because for example if we think of the other things that might kill people for example um cancer let's say you know is doing too much exercise going to increase your risk of cancer no like there, there's no there's we have you know mechanistic reasons to suspect that it might occur with cardiovascular disease at least but with cancer there wouldn't really be any reason to, to think that might be the case there wouldn't be any evidence to support that similarly when it comes to other things like for example diabetes can you exercise your way to diabetes like no it's probably the opposite so it's really the cardiovascular system that's that would seem to be the tipping point from a longevity perspective at least um however we have to think beyond just um lifespan and think about health span as well in this conversation and the the, the other kind of big area here then would be um the musculoskeletal system really because obviously there like there's no denying the fact that if you're doing extreme volumes of exercise and you're a you know an athlete that's willing to take risks for performance like there are risks of compromising joint health long-term, you know, ending up with osteoarthritis or, you know, you see a lot of athletes getting you know, hip replacements or knee replacements, because even if it's the case that, even if it's the case that you just have mild arthritis, let's say, and you're still, you know, uh, competing as an athlete, 
you're not going to stop probably. So you're going to keep aggravating it and keep aggravating. It's the same if, you know, you tear your meniscus or you get an ACL tear and you come back and, you know, athletes are just willing to take things a lot further than the average person. And therefore they can end up with um, injuries that can kind of nag at them for life really. Uh, So that can occur in a lot of cases, uh, particularly if someone has like a catastrophic injury during sport, for example, if you have an ACL tear, um, and then maybe you re-rupture it again. You're putting yourself at risk of increases in osteoarthritis later in life. And because you're an athlete, you're probably going to keep, keep competing or at the very least keep training. So as a result, you can end up with uh, problems down the line. So from a musculoskeletal perspective, of course, people can get injuries and injury rates are going to increase as you move towards extreme volumes of exercise. There's no denying that. And that can compromise your quality of life. Now, is it going to shorten your life? It's very unlikely that would be the case. Um, it might be that, you know, you have bad knees when you're older, but that's not really what we're asking in this podcast. So I, as, a, as I say, there's no denying that as soon as you begin to think about being an athlete and competing in sport, you have to accept there are certain risks that go along with that. You know, I ruptured my hamstrings earlier this year. I'm, I'm okay with that. Like I, I get that that was part of the risk of doing the sport. And as I go back to, you know, training jujitsu and probably competing in jujitsu, I appreciate that that could happen again. I appreciate that there could be worse injuries. There's a non-zero risk every time you go into the gym um, especially in like a grappling sport where you're throwing each other around that you could land in your neck and you could, you know, get a spinal cord injury. These things can happen. They can also happen in daily life, but naturally you are at elevated risk of catastrophic injuries when you're doing a sport where, you know, you're trying to kill each other, especially if you're doing like MMA or something like that, or even boxing, you're getting repeated head trauma. Of course, there are going to be trade-offs associated with that. That's why Paddy is the way he is from years of boxing. Fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah from a, a musculoskeletal perspective and from some other perspectives i suppose you could say the neurological component there when you're thinking about sports like boxing or sports with head trauma um, but we won't focus on that really in this podcast but that could be one for later episodes where we'll talk about uh, traumatic brain injury so yeah. and just fundamentally- on, we kind of have to make it clear who we're talking about here because when we're talking about exercise like it's such a blanket term, right? Are we talking about cardiovascular exercise? Are we talking about sport? Are we talking about resistance exercise? And the actual particulars of the, the protocols that are being used, right? That's going to influence things. Like if we're saying, oh yeah, let's just say the, the takeaway that we come to in this episode, it's it's not, but you know, let's just say it is. Let's say, oh, more exercise is better, right? That doesn't actually inform you too much in terms of, are we talking about, cardiovascular exercise are we saying that doing more like aerobic training is is better are we saying that doing more like resistance training is better like they're the particulars matter right because if we're saying oh let's just again picking a number out of my ass here let's just say 30 hours of exercise per week that's the sweet spot that's the upper limit it's way beyond what you know people think it is you know you can do 30 hours if we're talking about 30 hours of like heavy resistance training that's obviously different than 30 hours of running, right? So the exact particulars do matter and it's good and it's bad in a way in terms of like resistance training, you're kind of self-limited, right? Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is like, you just don't recover enough so that like, you just won't be able to lift the weights again, (laughs) right? So it's kind of self-limiting. So 
it's good it stops people doing too much however a lot of people end up in a kind of uh you know no man's land where they're not actually getting better results from the resistance training like we have pretty clear guidelines in terms of what's the most bang for your book in terms of resistance training from like a performance from a a results based you know point of view in terms of like how much volume do i need to do to get bigger muscles right we, we kind of have an idea of that so the discussion really starts to become more of well if we layered on maybe sports on top of that or maybe if we layered on some cardiovascular training on top of that because as we've discussed before like we generally believe in kind of a, a mixed modal you know style of training in terms of we want to do different modes of training we want to do some resistance training we want to do some cardiovascular training it's not just all like oh, do 30 hours of resistance training in the gym. So we kind of have to be specific with what we're actually talking about. And unfortunately, when we're talking about this stuff, we're not going to be able to be specific, right? In general, you can probably take it, and Gary, you might disagree with this. In general, you can probably take it that when we're talking about this stuff, we're generally talking about people at least hitting the baseline guidelines for resistance training work. So we'll just say, we'll put that at like two to three days per week in the gym, following all the best practice or evidence-based practice practices for two to three days in the gym. And then after that, we're talking about more cardiovascular or sporting activities, right? Would you agree with that as our kind of baseline? Like, obviously I'm saying two to three days in the gym, like, you know, two to three days, four days, five days. It's ultimately not a huge difference. Once we're in that kind of two to five days, maybe two to six days in the gym, you know, that it's, it's not too different, but what we're really talking about when we're talking about increasing levels of activity, exercise, it's kind of the sport and cardiovascular stuff that we start to talk a bit more about. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Because that's where, that's where you begin to see people really dip into the higher training volumes because you know generally if you're someone that's training for strength let's say you know and you're just trying to be, you're trying to build some muscle maybe even even if you're like a competitive bodybuilder like most even competitive bodybuilders they might be in the gym for 60 to 90 minutes maybe two hours if someone's doing very long workouts um five six days a week so like yeah that's is it a lot of weight training like yeah so, it is so we have to caveat that right then it's even more so the case with powerlifting right powerlifting and bodybuilding is basically basically competitive sitting down right yeah this is gonna say like, it's totally intermittent it's like yeah, the exercise, yeah exactly the exercise you do it's like interspersed like oh i pushed really hard like powerlifting for example pushed really hard for 10 seconds sat down for five minutes you know so it's not like the two hours you do in the gym is two hours of activity right very up and down a lot of it is just sitting around you know 100 percent, and that's that's kind of why we're focused more on the aerobic or endurance side of things because that's where people actually ask the questions like that's the question they're the questions that are asked in research because of this concern about the cardiovascular system can we do too much can we push it too far etc and when we look at people who do a lot of endurance training for example uh, triathletes marathon runners cyclists etc they're the ones that are really doing you know 10 15 20 plus hours sometimes um of training per week like that does absolutely occur very frequently um and i suppose the first question then is number because you can look at this in a number of ways the the adaptation or 
adaptation or the outcome for example your your end cardiorespiratory fitness like objectively how fit are you yeah, so and then num- vo2 max resting yeah. heart rate those kind of things exactly and then number two the or the volume of exercise that it takes to get there because they're actually kind of two different things um because for example if we were looking at um just cardiorespiratory fitness someone might genetically just have like a really high vo2 max but they haven't actually done any training so the outcomes will be different so step one is there a reduction in lifespan as we get to the extremes um, of elite levels let's say of cardiorespiratory fitness and the answer to that seems to be no from the evidence that's there at the moment um the the way that we might answer this would be to take um levels of of vo2 max quantified um by um well you can look at it at a vo2 max sense or else in some research it's done in terms of mets or metabolic equivalents so one metabolic equivalent would be 3.5 milliliters of milliliters of oxygen per kg per minute which is basically kind of a unit of the of the vo2 max but basically the reason that's there is because that's your kind of resting oxygen consumption so if you think of one metabolic equivalent as being the amount of kind of um cardiorespiratory demand that i have as i sit here if i was to do 10 times that that would be 10 mets if i was to do 15 times that it would be 15 mets so that's one of the things you'll see as you look into the research here and when you look at the kind of elite levels um what they've done here is taken the amount of METs someone can do in terms of their cardiorespiratory fitness and looked at it in terms of percentiles. So elite in um, this 2018 study in JAMA was over the 97th percentile. So that would mean that your cardiorespiratory fitness is fitter than 97% uh, of people. Um, and then, you know, they stra- substratify it down there for low, normal, high, etc. But what we're really interested in to answer this question is, do the people in that elite category above the 97th percentile, do they have worse health outcomes? And the answer in this case seems to be no. There seems to be, you know, a downward slope from those with low cardiorespiratory fitness to high all the way to elite cardiorespiratory fitness. And they have still lower all-cause mortality and greater survivability. Now, one thing that you might think there is, well, elite you know, that's only 97% of people. And maybe it's just that this emerges above the 99.7th percentile. And of course, you can make that case, and that might be true. But I think most of us listening to this podcast are probably not beyond the 97th percentile, you know, in terms of our level of fitness. Or maybe some of us are there. But that's really kind of what we're interested we're in. We're still different, Gary. <laughs> we're just built different. Uh, but for the most part, most you probably don't have to worry in terms of, you being too fit like oh no (laughs) i better stop training and get less fit because this is bad for my health so that's kind of the answer to question number one is can your cardiorespiratory fitness be too high probably not okay and that's the adaptation side of things the other thing that emerges from that um, line of research that's really interesting um, and is something i i suppose you can relay to family and friends is that having low aerobic uh, fitness actually confers similar um, risk to your health as more traditional risk factors. For example, smoking, um, having established coronary artery disease or diabetes. So low fitness is something that would be considered within that risk matrix. And it's probably something that should be considered more often than it is at the moment. Because, you know, even as a medical student, something we ask about very frequently is we'll ask, 
smoking history you know do you have diabetes have you had any cardiovascular events previously and you might ask you know does someone exercise but that's actually something that's you know kind of thrown in casually as opposed to it being something that's actually quite a potent predictor of someone's long-term health so it is something that's really important anything to add there on the actual outcome side before discussing exercise volumes um, well, it just makes sense in terms of if we think about this logically, right? Well, let's go to animal studies, right? Now, we don't necessarily want to go, oh, animals correlating to humans. But we know that animals with higher aerobic fitnesses tend to live longer, right? There's this, is, there's this kind of relationship with body size and um, longevity, we'll, we'll call it that, lifespan, right? And the only animals that ever like really book the trend. So let's just use the class of mammals, right? The only animals that book the trend with that are flighted animals, right? So if you've got a mouse, mice live fuck all, right? They're literally, they die very, very short lives, right? Whereas you've got something like, uh, I don't know, a, a larger animal, a human, right? We live longer, right? Um, so there is this kind of relationship here. But if you get something like a bat, right? It's the same as a mouse, right? Basically, it's a flighted mouse, right? They do not fit that curve. And the reason it's hypothesized, at least, why they don't fit the same like trajectory of lifespan is because they have such high levels of fitness. They have all these different adaptations as well around like uh, resistance to different uh, diseases. So yeah, that bat that gave us coronavirus, that well, that's what we're told anyway. Um, they probably didn't have any effects of that because you know bats live in huge colonies so they are kind of protected in terms of anyway that's it on the side um but anyway so their levels of aerobic fitness <clears throat> off the charts because they have to fly flying is very very demanding and it's the same with birds and they do also have other adaptations in terms of they have usually lower um proton leakage so they're very efficient so there's a thing you know protons leak across the intermitochondrial membrane and um, we don't need to go into the adaptations in, in terms of that we've talked about them before in, in various places in terms of um you know when you diet you get kind of more efficient well anyway stuff that can fly they're generally more efficient they get less proton leakage and they as a result they get less uh, heat loss to the surroundings which isn't necessarily a, always a good thing but it is something to be aware of, right? So anyway, the reason I bring that up is we could make a hypothesis. We could very well support that hypothesis and say that if you have better, you know, aerobic fitness, you're probably going to live longer, right? If you have more mitochondria, you're probably going to have better health throughout that lifespan, right? Because again, a lot of the, the theory of aging uh, it relates back to, like there is a mitochondrial theory of aging, which isn't like fully supported by all lines of evidence, but a lot of the diseases that are associated with death, you know, or older age kind of have a mitochondrial root. And it, it kind of makes sense as well, because like you've only got a certain amount of mitochondria. If you continue to get damage to those mitochondria over time, like they're going to divide and they're going to be the ones that keep going forward in, in your cells. So if we have, you know, worse mitochondria, you know, you've no selective pressure for selecting for the the better ones if you're not using them effectively, you know, where you're not doing a lot of exercise, etc. So we could make a lot of hypotheses or hypothesize um, about why having aerobic fitness or high levels of aerobic fitness will lead to a longer lifespan and potentially even a longer health span. But we don't need to do that because 
realistically, most people are not going to get to the upper echelons, like you were saying, Gary, of aerobic fitness. So what we really care about is what's the in-between here? Like where is there a, a point of diminishing returns? If we're saying there's no real upper limit, right? If you just get keep getting more and more aerobically fit, at least, right? You've covered your, your baseline requirements for strength, we'll say, muscle mass, et cetera. Like if we do more and more aerobic training, there doesn't really seem, at least in my understanding here, to be an upper limit at all, right? Even if you're saying like, oh, well, you get past like a certain level, maybe it's up to like 97% or it's the 98%, 99%, then there's the, the critical <laughs> drop-off point. But it just doesn't seem to, at least mechanistically, make sense for me, right? Um, but I don't know if you would agree with that fully, Gary. Yeah, I mean, I think I mostly would. Like, I mean, the... The, my, my views have kind of changed on this over time because I thought that I would have thought previously that the risks to the cardiovascular system would have been greater, particularly in terms of, you know, ending up with pathological heart rhythms and um, things like that. But it just doesn't seem that that really plays out in the evidence. Like, yes, this can occur sometimes, but you have to ask yourself, okay, but what if they didn't do the exercise or what if they did far less? Is the aerobic outcome still conferring a better longevity effect than some of these potentially harmful things that we're seeing um so overall i think the it's hard to it's hard to suggest that there is an upper limit of aerobic fitness um particularly in isolation the aerobic fitness itself as opposed to everything that's required to get there and all that goes along with it um and that kind of brings us to the the next part of the question which is the the exercise volume separate to simply the adaptations so you know we said previously that we were talking about the actual outcome there in terms of measured cardiorespiratory fitness then the other part of that question is how much exercise one actually does and a nice way of looking at this is to compare it to the recommendations let's say so for example if you do two times the recommended aerobic exercise is that still conferring benefit what about five times what about ten times and this has been studied where if you look at uh, 150 minutes, let's say, of uh, physical activity per week, of moderate intensity physical activity per week, or you look at you know five times that or ten times that, it seems like there still continues to be a graded reduction in mortality. Now there might be a bit of a signal at kind of ten plus times the recommend the recommendations that maybe that trend starts to reverse but it's still very much lower than the earlier categories of lower physical activity. And to be honest, like there's just, just such, such little data available there at the high end of 10 plus times the recommendations for obvious reasons that it's hard to say if there's even a signal there, but basically yeah, just, the, just on that as well, like that's measured in met, right? So that doesn't necessarily tell us about, what was actually being done. Like you could get a way higher mesh equivalent of how much exercise you're doing. But if you're doing a load of like high intensity interval training, like yeah, technically you're going to get a higher mesh output for that, but that might be more pathological. For example, like you might do 20 hours of higher intensity stuff and that's different than doing 40 hours of lower intensity stuff. Now they might not be equivalent in terms of the mets, but I'm just, whatever the equivalent is. Right. Um, so it's, just because there's a signal there, there's a, 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 you know, we're getting some data point there that doesn't really tell us everything that we want to know, 
right? As we said earlier, like there is clearly a difference in terms of the actual particulars of what we're doing, right? If we're doing, you know, let's say resistance training for 40 hours per week or whatever med equivalent that is versus doing 40 hours per week of a low intensity exercise, again, there's different outcomes, both in terms of the end outcome and then also in terms of the actual like adaptations that we're kind of trying to elicit but then also the wear and tear we'll, we'll call it i usually hate that term but the wear and tear that's put on the body in the moment you know yeah and i mean a, a simpler way of looking at it is it and they did it in this study was kind of broke it down into three categories in terms of minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise which is you know, that's, that's kind of like the cardio most people would do. They go on the bike, they sit there, they're short of breath. You know, they might be able to just about hold a conversation, but they're feeling short of breath. That's moderate intensity physical activity. So th this study that, that we were looking at broke down into less or low physical activity, for example, less than 150 minutes per week. So less than two and a half hours. Then there was the middle category of moderate, which was very broad of 150 to 750 minutes per week. So you're kind of doing the recommendation or 10 times that. And then the high physical activity group are above 750 minutes per week. So they're doing over 12 and a half hours of moderate intensity physical activity per week. And interesting, interestingly, what you see is that the moderate intensity group, they had a lower risk of mortality than the, physical, the low physical activity group that's great. You'd expect that. But even lower was the high physical activity group of greater than 750 minutes per week, which is encouraging, I think, because if you were going to find, you know, a clear signal of there being a huge risk, 12 and a half hours, you'd kind of expect that to unmask it. So that doesn't mean that it doesn't emerge at 25, 30, 40 hours a week. But how many of you listening to this podcast are doing that? You know, I mean, 12 and a half hours, what that would look like you know, it, it tech, I, I could do that sometimes, maybe if you were doing a two hour hard jujitsu session where you were constantly, um, constantly on the go, let's say, um, and you did that four days a week, that's eight hours, that's tough enough training as it is. And then you do maybe two hours of or, or, or an extra four or five hours of cardio across the week on the bike let's say then yeah you can get up to that level but most people aren't getting near that in terms of um cardiorespiratory exercise so fundamentally i think the answer there is that if there is um a level of volume at which we begin to see clear increases in risks to your health most people probably aren't getting there and it's probably a lot higher than most people would suspect because a lot of the time um when people talk about this uh this risk of, of doing too much exercise, it's kind of assumed that that emerges just beyond where the exercise guidelines are. So if it's 150 minutes just, or 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity, it's kind of assumed that, okay, as you go beyond that, you're going to start to see some health problems emerge. Whereas it's probably at least three, five, 10 times what's actually within those recommendations, if anything is even there. So fundamentally, lower going to, yeah, going back to our analogy of the, well, it's not an analogy, well, the metaphor, I suppose, of the you, like what Gary's saying is people assume that the 600 or the 300 or whatever, like that's the end of it. And that's where we start inflecting and going back up. When in reality, the bottom of that you is probably far, far wider than people assume you know yeah like if it's it's it'd be more like 
I don't know, a kind of a fancy L where you come down, you slope, and then maybe you flick it up at the end very far down or something. But uh, again, like the, the, I think it can be so, it's so easy to assume that all these relationships are so well established when you see someone, you know, they make a nice graphic on Instagram or even an exercise physiology textbook, you'll see this sometimes. They'll make a nice graphic. Oh, here's the U-shaped relationship. But it's very rarely that things are so clear. And here it's definitely not so clear. Um, and, and practically, which is what we want to keep coming back to in terms of the, the listeners that are listening to this podcast, do you have to be worried about doing too much cardio? <laughs> probably not. Most of you probably aren't there. And in particular, I suppose, of interest as well is when we looked at those three categories of low, moderate and high physical activity, it wasn't just lower all-cause mortality or greater survivability. It was also lower um, cardiovascular disease, which is obviously of importance here since we're saying this is probably on the, the um, causal pathway. And then in addition to that as well, that that higher physical activity relationship, it seems to exist in low, middle and high income countries. So it doesn't just seem to be, you know, only in, because people might make that case sometimes where, oh yeah, well, that's just people who are in high-income countries who have all this leisure time that they can allocate to, to exercise. But we see this in people who are in lower-income countries as well, even when it's associated with just, for example, occupational physical activity. So the, the relationship is, is, is true across many groups of people. Now, that brings us then, so we, we've kind of answered the question, you know, do can you be too fit in terms of your cardiorespiratory fitness? The answer is probably not. Maybe depending on what got you there. Like, obviously this is something we'll come back to just after we get over the next section. But if you've taken loads of drugs to get there, of course that could potentially shorten your life. Um, but then the second component of that is, can you do too much exercise to get that increase in cardiorespiratory fitness? And the answer is maybe, but most of us probably aren't going to get there even if we tried. Okay. And for most people, it's probably not a concern. And then, the next thing I want to just touch on quickly is the idea that we, we, and I say we as in people who are getting our health checked, but also in terms of medical professionals, let's say, who are assessing athletes, we should probably interpret athletes' health outcomes differently. So that includes, for example, like you mentioned previously, Patty, when you look at uh, an ECG, for example, when you're looking at the, electrophysi the electrophysiological activity within the heart, that's going to be different in an athlete. Okay. There's going to be changes there that if you saw them in a healthy person, you'd be worried. You might think, okay, is that, is that a, a problem? Or is this something that we see very frequently in athletes? There are clear differences in athletes and um, untrained people. If you were to do something like an echocardiogram, which is like, it's kind of like an ultrasound where you look at the heart and you look at the size of the chambers and things like that, you'll see in an athlete that they have these thick ventricles. So the left ventricle will be thickened um, because of the adaptations to exercise over time. You see that in an untrained person, someone who has long-term hypertension, high blood pressure, that's something you'd consider to be pathological. You see it in this case with an athlete, it's something that's physiological. And there's differentiators there in terms of how big an athlete's ventricle is going to get versus um, a pathological type of ventricle. So just on that, when we're saying athletes, generally we're, we're talking to people that are doing like cardiovascular work. I, so yeah. I know people will listen to this and they will be a bodybuilder and they'll have like left ventric ventricular thick, thickening, can't even fucking speak, left ventricular thickening. And it's I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you've been on all kinds of steroids. Like this is not 
the same as someone who because you just because you th- you train is this is not the same as someone else who's doing cardiovascular work so again when we're saying athletes we are talking about people doing cardiovascular work and probably not on drugs yeah and and to be fair like people who do weight training only they like you will actually have beneficial adaptations to your heart as well um but you know it it depends on whether or not that was contributed to by drugs like if you're a bodybuilder who's competing and you're taking drugs particularly those that let's say have effects in the heart but also those that might increase risk of high blood pressure that then is having effects in your heart it's a little bit messier um weight training in general beneficial for the heart but for the purpose of this discussion we're talking about these high volumes of cardiovascular exercise and just on this as well just to round it out a bit more this isn't only in people that do drugs you see this as well in people that you know go on these absolute massive bulks you know yeah. where it's like i'm just going to go on this turbo bulk to gain fucking five kilos of, of muscle and they gain 30 kilos of weight to gain that five kilos of muscle like that's probably also going to lead to pathological adaptations as well and look we've all been there it's not like you like we all knew better and we just didn't did it anyway like we've all done stupid things in the past in the in the pursuit of mass um but it probably isn't again it isn't the same as someone who's got those adaptations from cardiovascular work versus someone who's just turbo bulked their way to those adaptations 100 percent um so yeah that's that that's kind of like the the dimensions of the heart you will see and then there's a lot more kind of specificity you can go into there but fundamentally the point is that you know, interpreting what an athlete's heart looks like should be considered within the context of their sport. There are also um, both gender and ethnic differences in terms of the adaptations that take place, excuse me, in the heart and the magnitude of the effects that will occur there. Um, and then there's also, you know, other things beyond just the, the structure of the heart itself or its electrical circuits, let's say. Also, when you're looking at things like, for example, let's say you go to your doctor and you're trying to understand you know, am I at risk of cardiovascular disease? And they send you away for a coronary artery uh, calcification exam. Um, and what they find is that you've got calcified coronary arteries. Now, that's something that generally provides a signal as to car- as to what your cardiovascular risk might be. Um, it's it, dep- it depends on the population that you're looking at. And athletes are one population that this is a little bit more complex because what you see in athletes is that endurance athletes over time um, and, and those most active athletes, they do actually have a higher coronary artery um, calcification prevalence than least active athletes. So the more, the more um, total exercise volume you're doing, the more likely you are to have this calcification taking place. But you see, when you look at calcification on one of these scans, what you're observing is the calcification, but you're not getting other information, for example, about um, the, the type of plaque that's there. So if you have a plaque that is very lipid rich, so it's real like fatty, it's softer or it's mixed. If it's you know got a little bit of calcium, but it's got lots of these lipids underneath versus just like pure calcification, these confer different risk. And what you see in athletes is that they have they're more likely to have just these calcified plaques. And it seems like um, especially because these types of plaques are associated re- with reduced risk of future events versus the other types of plaques, that these calcification calcifications that are present, rather than being the kind of end result of 
long-term atherosclerosis where you've got the development of, of plaques because of lipid deposition. You know, you've got these fatty depositions in the walls of your arteries. Instead of that being like the general trend, it seems to be that it might just be the result of the high volume of blood flow that's constantly going through those arteries. And you'd imagine over time that they get stressed by that and that this calcification is almost like an adaptation to that. That's not to say it's totally benign, but that it should be interpreted differently than if this was to in, in a 55 year old male who would never train in his life before that that same coronary artery calcification might be different. Now that's a very niche example, but it's just something that does come up similar to the dimensions of the heart, similar to um, the electrical physiological findings. Like you said, Patty, I think you had um, an increase in your PR interval in your last ECG. So you had first degree, um, first degree heart block technically. Um, and basically that again, is just something that's seen very frequently in athletes and is of uh, currently it's seen to be of little significance. So fundamentally there the the the, we see this in many many other areas in blood tests for example people will go for blood tests and they'll say oh your creatine kinase is way up or your liver enzymes are increased but it's just that you're an athlete you've been training your tests need to be interpreted differently and that's fundamentally the message here athletes health outcomes and particularly those risk factors should be considered differently than a sedentary person 100 percent but uh, do athletes live longer, Gary? Like we've been talking about this and, you know, okay, we've got, we've got all these things. I'll interpret them differently, but we actually want to know the outcomes. I want to yeah. know, these athletes, yeah, are, are these athletes dropping dead, right? Just because, oh, we have this theoretical, like, oh yeah, like we can hypothesize that being fitter is better and blah, blah, blah. But let me see the bodies. Like I, who's dying? That's the fundamental question. You know, at the end of the day, do they live longer or don't they live longer? And what we're looking at here is athletes. You know, the, these are high level athletes. These are people who have trained their entire lives. These aren't people who are just casually in the gym. These are competitive athletes. So if there was going to be a signal here that was going to emerge and tell us that doing too much training is going to shorten your life, these would be the people to observe it in, particularly Olympians and things like that. And unfortunately, or I guess fortunately for us, it doesn't seem like there's really much of a signal here um i pulled out you know one study and there is some more evidence that maybe suggests in some cases um lower survivability for example there's one study on um german olympians where they seem to have um lower survivability fairly small effect but lower survivability survivability than some other um populations but it's kind of messy as well, because what you're looking at here is in Germany, supposedly at, the, at this time, anyway, that there was a lower socioeconomic benefit from being an athlete. So, you know, that's a little bit more complex in terms of bringing in so, some of those socioeconomic factors, generally lower life satisfaction as well. Um, and also the fact that there's a higher baseline life expectancy in Germany, which kind of skews the assessment here from an epidemiology perspective. So like I brought that out just because it was just interesting to see a signal in the opposite direction, but overall the kind of body of evidence as a whole suggests that athletes tend to live longer. Um, It seems like you live longer, you've reduced incidence of cardiovascular disease, reduced incidence of cancer and mortality associated with that. And 
as as a kind of a general question, do athletes live longer? The answer is yes. Are there caveats to that? Would it vary by sport? Most likely. Um, we've touched on that multiple times in the podcast. We won't repeat it, but it most likely varies by sport. There might be sex differences. And in particular, I think the really important thing here is the level of sport that one is competing at. And if that is a sport that's likely to be associated with drug use, um, this is something that you always have to, to kind of bring into the discussion when we're talking about uh, athletes, particularly elite athletes. Like we're, we're talking about the, the German Olympians there, you know, I mean, are there likely to be some drugs? Um, I forget the year that the study was carried out, but I'm pretty sure at the time it was still, um, East and West Germany kind of differentiated, but like, are there likely to be some drugs in the picture there? Like, yes, of course. And also along with that, if you're in a sport, let's say that has a very short span of competition, like let's say you're no longer competing in your thirties, what did the rest of that person's life look like? You know? Um, so th these are very important considerations. Um, you know, was someone successful in their sport? That's something that's important as well. If someone wasn't successful, maybe they ended up with mental health complications and afterwards they got into gambling or whatever it happens to be. Th these things are very messy when looking at um, Olympians and elite athletes, competitive athletes, etc. But fundamentally, the answer is, is yes. Athletes seem to live longer. Athletes seem to have lower risks of the types of diseases that we would expect to shorten one's life. And therefore, I wouldn't be of the opinion that most of us are going to exercise too much to the point that it would shorten our lives or significantly reduce our quality of lives. It's probably a very minimal concern. Um, but I'm not sure if you have anything to add there, Patty. Maybe you're yeah, going to touch on the drugs. Yeah, it's one of those ones where it's actually really hard to parse out the data because, mm -hmm. like you said, are we talking about drugs in the mix? Like if you talk about any elite athlete, like 99% of them are on drugs. I know that destroys everyone's hopes and dreams being like, no, insert X, my favorite, uh, you know, sporting athlete. They're not on drugs. They're on drugs. I, I don't care. They're, they're literally on drugs, right? <laughs> uh, the vast majority of them are on drugs, right? So that clearly complicates the, the understanding here because a lot of these drugs have side effects, which are likely to reduce your life expectancy right and like they it's a classic study that people always cite but it's like you know offering olympians or high level uh, athletes oh if you could take a drug and it's gonna like you know kill you in five years or whatever it was would you take it and fucking all of them are like yeah like <laughs> like the, i should say the drug was if you take a drug that's going to give you success in your sport etc would you take it even though it's going to kill you in five years or whatever and they were pretty much all saying yes right and um, so like they're not above it, right? They might seem like a paragon of, you know, health and whatever, but they're probably on drugs that are, you know, not ideal for their health, not ideal for their health and longevity. And further to that, like you said, Gary, this is one of those things where we're not actually really comparing the population or comparing to populations that we actually care about, right? Because we're looking at the athletes purely because we want to see someone or look at someone that does high levels of activity right but that's not exactly what we're actually trying to look at when we're talking about how do we inform our own decisions because what we're talking about is oh i'm going to train across my lifespan towards you know better health right so should i do more activity generally 
Like that's different than someone saying, oh, well, you know, when I was younger in my 20s to 30s, I trained 50 hours per week. And then after that, I didn't really do much, you know, like if we're looking at the two individuals at 80, the person that's been training 12 and a half hours per week consistently for the last fucking whatever, 60 years versus the athlete who was training 50 hours per week for a 10 year period, like they are different, right? So it's kind of hard to be very specific in terms of what are the actual like outcomes and what are the actual results of either of those interventions, right? So even though we're looking at athletes, it's not an ideal population because drugs are in the mix and it's not the same as what we want to do. Like, you know, most athletes, like their, their careers are kind of finishing up at 35, you know, let's just say 35 is probably in and around the average. Again, it depends on the sport. Like if you're, I don't know, a female gymnast, it's probably ending at like 18, you know, um, which is grim enough. But, you know, th- this kind of stuff, it does actually matter for our interpretation, right? And then also a lot of them, if not the majority of them are on drugs, right? And this is especially the case if they then go to be a pro. Like if we're looking at Olympians and their sport then allows them to become pro afterwards, like you can almost a hundred percent guess that they were on drugs during the Olympics. And then after the Olympics, when they went pro, they were on more drugs. Like you see this all the time in boxing, for example, you'll see people competing in the Olympics and then all of a sudden they'll be like, right, I'm going to go pro because Olympics are quote unquote amateur. And they'll go from being an amateur, they'll go into the pros. And then all of a sudden they'll just gain 30, 40 pounds of a lean mass in like a year, two year time frame, And you're like, how the fuck did that happen? And then you realize that like stuff like boxing is voluntary anti-doping association is the one that, uh, you know, monitors them. So it's all voluntary. Like they get told in advance, oh, you're going to be tested on this day, blah, 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 you know, or you don't have to take it. It's all voluntary. So they're all on fucking all the drugs, right? So again, that's a real confounding factor with all of this. And obviously different drugs have different effects. We're not going to go through every single drug here and now, but we also do have to take into account that some of these drugs have a much better safety profile. And some of these drugs are basically just research chemicals, different fucking peptides or whatever. And, you know, we could argue that biologicals are a little bit safer than some random chemical, but the fact remains that we don't have a lot of long-term data on all of this stuff. Like you could be taking which I know a lot of athletes do like different drugs that are just research chemicals that are potentially associated with cancer. You know, maybe the association is in rats, for example. Um, like people take cardarine, which is, you know, a, a drug to potentially increase your level of fitness, but it's also a drug that potentially is associated with cancer. Right. So if we're looking at the outcomes for that individual, be like, oh, this person has a really high VO2 max or a really high, you know, cardiorespiratory fitness, whatever measure you want to use for that. But the way they got it is not the same as someone who's just done more activity or has a higher genetic, you know, baseline, you know? So I don't know, Gary, what's the story then if we're, if we can't really use athletes, but also we kind of need to use athletes as our, our comparison population. Yeah. So I think it's okay to, I think it's okay to use athletes. I think you just have to understand that there might be some caveats there because what we've added in really is the discussion of athletes 
the discussion of those who just can do very high volumes of exercise and then discuss who object and then those who objectively have high levels of cardiorespiratory fitness. I also just went back to that study that I cited previously to see if you could get a clear answer, but the East, East Germany actually had um, greater survivability than West Germany, which I probably would, I would have expected the opposite because I think East Germany is more notoriously known for suspected drug use. Um, yeah. So I kind of thought that they might have, but maybe, maybe that's the secret. Is that is that a signal to that we oh, should be on? That would be fantastic. I'd be on. That'd all. be great. So that's the take home <laughs> of the podcast. No, in all seriousness, uh, that is an interesting area for further uh, discussion in future. But anyway, um, the the conclusion I suppose is that overall, I think if you're doing a very high volume of exercise, or if you're at a point where you're considering doing more exercise, do you need to be worried about that harming your health? Probably not. It's probably not going to shorten your life. It's more likely to increase the length of your life. It's more likely to reduce cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular disease um, mortality and also cancer mortality and the other kind of big hitters when it comes to what's likely to cause your death. That doesn't mean that's true of everyone. And if you're an athlete that lives in a sport or that competes in a sport that is likely to, you know, be terminating in your thirties, for example, I think the the an easy comparison here would be for would be Cristiano Ronaldo, let's say, versus Wayne Rooney. For those of you who know them both, they're actually the same age, but since Wayne Wayne Rooney in the last ten years looks like he's about fifty, um, so he's now you know pretty overweight, you know, isn't probably isn't doing much training anymore, um, compared to someone like Ronaldo who's in like tip top shape still playing etc that doesn't mean they'll have different health outcomes long term but it's likely that will probably have some degree of an effect so yes they did 20 to 30 years let's say of high quality training but do they keep it up there are plenty of ex-soccer players that end up you know just uh, you know drinking a lot or gambling or whatever of course that affects their health long term so that's why athletes aren't exactly the perfect comparison here and why we need to look at these objective outcomes like cardiorespiratory fitness and total exercise volume and we see this signal of more exercise generally being better and higher cardiorespiratory fitness generally being better at all ages and that's the important thing is that whether you're in your 30s you know someone who's still competing or you're in your 60s or 70s the effect still stands and the reason we recommend starting young is because the more you build the more you have to lose because there is an age-related decline but the good thing is that if you're listening to this podcast or you're advising someone who didn't build their fitness early in life, doing it now in your 60s, 70s, even 80s, you can still get those health benefits from doing more exercise and from increasing your cardiorespiratory fitness. So um, in summary, more is probably better in the vast majority of cases, not all. There may be some trade-offs and for some people, maybe they have pre-existing conditions that would preclude them from being able to do very high volumes. Um, and if you're an athlete, recognize that depending on the nature of your sport and depending on your plans in the future with competing in that sport and what goes along with that, the relationship between doing more and being fitter and your health might be a bit more complicated with caveats, depending on the sport, etc. cetera. hundred percent. And effectively, in my mind, at least, the conclusion becomes more is probably better, right? There's probably a drop-off in return on investment at some stage. However, 
it's probably above the kind of 10, 15 hour per week mark, which most people really aren't getting, right? However, we also have to consider that doing say 10 hours per week of activity, it might actually hamper your recovery and your, what would you call it? Your actual life <laughs> um, in terms of 10 hours per week. If you have a job on top of that and you have maybe other hobbies, like you don't have a lot of time available to do a whole lot. So your actual quality of life might be impacted by that. Now, of course, like the quality of your life might be improved by virtue of doing a sport or, you know, doing activity so that, you know, you actually get out of the house, you enjoy whatever. Right. So we have to kind of be wary in terms of just looking at it purely on a numbers game, because how is the individual actually recovering from that overall training? How is their sleep? Is it being impacted by, you know, high volumes of training? Like, are they getting up at whatever, 5 a.m. to go for a two-hour run because they have work to do and then they have a really stressful job and then after work, they also have to go do a resistance training session or like whatever it is, right? We have to be aware that recovery still has to be factored into this just because a higher level of, you know, activity seems to be beneficial doesn't mean you should just jump into that and doesn't mean that that's beneficial for you as an individual. Like we're making the assumption that you're building up to a certain level of volume. You're not just jumping in head first and going, oh yeah, this is great. The boys said to do 15 hours per week of activity. So I'm going to do 15 hours. And for the last 10 years of your life, you haven't got over three hours of activity in a week. You know, like that has to be, you have to build up to that level of volume. You have to build up a tolerance. You have to build up the adaptations that allow you to even train that much, right? So we have to be aware of that. Like Gary, even at your fittest, you know, if you were to just jump in and add another 10 hours of activity, like the wheels are going to fall off the wagon, right? Absolutely. Like it's, it's just not, it just doesn't make sense. Right. So we have to factor that stuff in. We have to factor in the real life situation that an individual has. And then also their recovery capacity and recovery abilities, both genetic and then also due to their lifestyle. Right now, I don't want to just leave people going like, Oh yeah, look, it's just more is better. Blah, blah, blah. We, we, kind of paid a little bit of lip service to okay the practicalities or the particulars i should say of the actual activities that we do you know they clearly matter as well there was one study that i i pulled up here just to kind of give a little bit of a gradation in terms of health outcomes like power athlete, power athletes lived 1.6 years longer and had a 10 percent lower risk of death from not or compared to non-athletes Team athletes, so we'll just say sports, right, lived four years longer and had a 33% lower risk of death, again, compared to, you know, we'll just call them general pop population. Um, endurance athletes lived 5.7 years longer and had a 43% lower risk of death, right? So we can kind of get some sort of signal from that, right? There seems to be, again, a baseline level of resistance training that we need to do strength training that we need to do and again that seems to fall into that kind of two to three days per week you can get a good return on investment cool right after that if we're training for health and we're looking for health outcomes it probably makes more sense to do some sort of cardiovascular training right if you're really really trying to maximize your health i would argue that it makes more sense to do aerobic training specifically right working on aerobic adaptations rather than the more anaerobic adaptations that you could be working on and calling a cardiovascular condition right so it that's 
in my mind, how it kind of makes sense, you would do the baseline level of resistance training. So you're on that more strength and hypertrophy side of the scale. And then you basically, for your cardiovascular conditioning, you work on the opposite side of the scale and you do more of that kind of endurance style work, right? And as a result, like you kind of fill in the gaps in between, you get some anaerobic adaptations, you get some of the different fucking things that we could be working on. But really, the vast majority of your time is spent on aerobic training and you're doing the minimum to kind of moderate amount of resistance training or strength training to continue building muscle, to continue building strength, and then getting to that point where you're, again, you're older or whatever, you're doing the minimum required to maintain or gain as much muscle and strength as you possibly can, right? Because if we're talking about health outcomes, it seems to be that the aerobic adaptations and the aerobic training are the most protective, are the most beneficial from a health and longevity perspective. But that only really seems to make sense, assuming the wheels don't fall off the wagon with strength, you know, or muscle mass, like just doing a load of cardiovascular conditioning and you're 90 years old and you've been 15 years into uh, a sarcopenic like state, like we could potentially give you a higher quality of life by just layering in some more resistance training, building more muscle, building more strength, you know, so we have to look at both of those it's not just oh if i want to live longer i'm just going to do a load of endurance training and do a load of like cardiovascular training that is on the background of resistance training and i would probably argue that resistance training is the key focal point like the two to three days you spend in the gym that's the most important thing right because that's the thing that's actually probably going to give you a higher quality of life even though it might not necessarily extend your life as much like we said with the power athletes here like they're only 1.6 years longer they're only living 1.6 years longer on average in this study right however i would argue that, that they have a higher quality of life by virtue of having more muscle strength etc right then if we have more time we're layering in the aerobic stuff that's the the biggest return on investment in my mind right would you agree with that gary yeah absolutely i think the 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 kind of key point is that the upper the upper end where you know benefits start to diminish for aerobic training is far far higher than that of strength you know um from a function perspective people don't need to be doing five six seven days of of weight training and you don't need to be doing that for aerobic training either but is doing an hour a day seven days a week gonna you know adding that on to what you're already doing from an aerobic perspective, is that going to increase your uh, longevity? You know, it probably will. I, I think it probably would. And, and the important thing is there is that when we're talking about aerobic training, I'm not talking about you going out and, you know, running hard, pounding the roads for an hour. I'm talking about, you know, you get on a cross trainer in the morning or you hop on the stationary bike and you do, you can be listening to a podcast, you can be listening to an audio book, you could be reading a book or whatever, you're just doing that for an hour and getting the heart rate up. It could be, again, it could be hike, anything like that. All we're talking about here is getting the heart rate up to maybe 120 to 150 beats per minute. Somewhere around there is good. If you're, if you're doing that an hour a day for seven days a week, that's actually not going to take away too much from the rest of your life for that day. Whereas if you're doing an hour of hard weight training seven days a week, on top of what you're already doing, then that might actually leave you feeling, you know, more fatigued. You've got these increasing recovery demands, et cetera. So 
when we're talking about aerobic training, just remind yourself as well that it doesn't mean we're talking about competitive running sessions or anything like that. We're talking about getting the heart rate up, getting short of breath, and doing that for a prolonged period of time. And the benefits um, probably do climb quite high there. 100%. Uh, and then further to that, obviously, we haven't mentioned it much at all because we're talking about exercise here, but the diet does play a role in that as well. Like athletes, you know, a lot of them don't have good diets and they seem to be somewhat protected by virtue of having high amounts of exercise or, or I should say high amounts of activity. However, if you also layer on a better diet, potentially there's additional benefits there as well, especially stuff like if your diet is high in saturated fat, just because you're doing a load of cardiovascular training doesn't mean that that offsets the risk for heart disease of the high saturated fat intake, you know? So we have to be pragmatic with this stuff and then also hypothesize a little bit in terms of thinking, okay, well, we can only get additional benefits from having a good diet on top of having a good exercise protocol, right? And then further to that, if we are able to do a needs analysis, that's probably going to lead to better results, right? If you are someone who is lacking in strength, but you have a really good aerobic base. If we bias your training towards a little bit more strength training, that's only going to benefit you until we get those adaptations, right? Conversely, if you're someone who's only done strength training for your whole life, if we get you to be more aerobically fit, that's only going to benefit you, right? So if we have the ability to do a needs analysis, see where you're weak, design a protocol to bring up those lagging areas, that's probably going to be better than just having a generic like, oh, you need to do 10 hours of aerobic training per week. You know, like you as an individual might not need that. You as an individual might need five hours of resistance training. That's what you actually need because you've no muscle mass, you've no strength, your ability to move in different planes of motion is fucking shocking, whatever it is, right? So if you're able to design a better training program and support that with a better nutritional program the results are only going to potentially be better than if we were to just give you this generic uh you know recommendation and on that point gary do we have coaching spots available we do have coaching spots available um so if you'd like to work with triage work with myself patty or one of the other coaches you can do so you can find information in the description box below about that we also have spots for coaches or wannabe coaches in the sense that we have a nutrition course. So if you'd like to get certified in nutrition coaching with triage, then you can do so. So uh, we've had a number of people sign up so far that seem to be enjoying the course. We're just getting going and we're going to be continuing to make this course even better over time. And it's already excellent. So I do recommend that if you're trying to upskill, you're trying to increase your nutrition knowledge and most importantly, your competence at relaying that knowledge practically to others, then sign up for the course. Maybe you don't want to engage with any of those services, but you want more information from triage, more free knowledge. Of course, you're listening to the podcast, continue to do so. Share it with your friends, share it on your Instagram story, share it wherever you happen to frequent. Leave a rating and review if you can. Make sure you're following us on social media at Triage Method. And also subscribe to the Triage Method newsletter where you'll receive exclusive content from Triage each week that doesn't go on our social media. And you'll be the first to know about any updates we have, offers we have, etc. Fantastic. I don't have anything else to add to that. So I hope everyone enjoyed that. I hope you got something from it. As per usual, if you can share it, do all that kind of stuff on 
uh, social media. That does really help. Um, but other than that, we'll see you in the next one, guys.